everybody over to Luke chapter 22 this morning. And uh, so, uh, a few weeks back, actually, at the, the Fifth Wednesday Fellowship, when we don't have men's or women's Bible study, uh, Adam Thiessen, uh, he's getting nervous now, introduced me to uh, a phrase that I'm, I'm pretty sure that the cool kids are not saying, uh, but apparently it's all the rage within corporate America. Uh, and, and the phrase is this, he said, uh, let's level set. Any of you heard that phrase? Let's level set. One other person? That's it, Adam. Uh, it, it means that we get everyone caught up and on the same page. That, that's what it means. And apparently it's, it's thrown around in corporate meetings here and there. Uh, well, it's, it's been 20 weeks since we were in the Gospel of Luke, which is quite a while, right? It was uh, right at the beginning of the summer, right before the summer began. And so we are going to uh, pick back up in Luke chapter 22 today. Uh, and, and, and so I think before we actually dig into it, we need to take a moment and just, just level set. Did that roll off the tongue sounding right? Um, and, and kind of here's where we're at, okay? And, and so just to step it back a little bit, right? Jesus celebrated the Passover with his, his 12 disciples, and, and there he instituted the Lord's Supper. And, and then some of, his argu- some of his disciples began to argue about uh, which of them is the greatest, and, and Jesus tells them, right, if you want to be the greatest, if that's what you want to be, then you need to be the servant of, of others, of all. And, and Jesus tells uh, Peter after that, you are going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, and, and Peter responded, that will never happen. I'm willing to, to die for you. That will never happen. Um, and, and then Jesus and the twelve all go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father, and and this is where he is when, when Judas, one of his disciples, betrays him by leading the Jewish leaders to him. And so now they're able to arrest him. Uh, and, and Jesus is then led to the high priest's house. And, and outside of that house, Peter is there. And Peter, um, just as Jesus said he would, he denies that he even knows Jesus. And, and the rooster crows and Peter weeps bitterly. And, and that's where we left off right there. And so now it's, it's coming on daybreak, right, uh, on, on, the, on the night before or the night before Jesus' crucifixion, and, and that's where we're picking up this Lord's Day morning together. So uh, we're going to read this beginning in uh, verse 63 of, of Luke 22. Uh, follow along as I read out loud, and then we'll get into it. <clears throat> now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they all said, Are are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we return to the Gospel of Luke this morning, please draw our minds, our our hearts into these historical events where we learn who Jesus is and and how you sovereignly have brought about our redemption. Holy Spirit, may we this morning not just gain 
intellectual information, but, but even more so, may we grow to know Jesus more, to love Jesus more. And, and so please enlighten our hearts, and it's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you've read the, the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis, one of the most engaging scenes, in my opinion, is, is when Aslan, this massive, mighty, powerful lion sluggishly walks into the camp of the evil white witch and he allows himself to be tied up. He allows himself to be beaten and shaved and and mocked by these evil-hearted thugs. And and all the while, two of the children, Lucy and and Susan, watch from a distance and and they are just in horrified disbelief that, that here is this Christ figure, right, Aslan, allowing this to happen. You see, beginning with our, our passage this morning and, and, and every event from here on leading up until Jesus' last breath upon the cross is, is, is like that for us. There, there's a sense in which we look at that and just horrified disbelief. Here we, today rather, we, we, we learn that the men who are supposed to be simply guarding Jesus and, until his trial await, right, as he awaits his trials, they, they choose instead that to mock him, to beat our Lord. This is all completely unprovoked. It's unnecessary brutality against a man who is in their custody. These men are acting evil. They are, um, what they do here is evil. These guards both physically and and psychologically torment our Lord. Remember, Jesus was widely known to be a prophet in this time. Uh, He did Many miracles, many of his miracles actually were very similar to what Elijah and Elijah, that some of the older prophets did, but, but these guards, they do not believe that Jesus is a prophet. They don't believe he's anything, he says. And so they tie a blindfold over Jesus' eyes and they begin to hit him only to shout, prophesy, prophesy. Which one of us struck you, huh? Who was it? It's this taunting that they do. It's a little like Satan in the desert when he tempted our Lord saying, if, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Prove it if you are. Here are these men saying, if you really are a, a prophet like you say, like others have said about you, then, then tell us, who is it that just hit you? There are always men in the world who, who mock God like this way. I've heard it in many different ways, right? If, if God, if you really exist, then, then why in the world don't you strike me dead for saying the things I say about you? Prove it. The irony is that in this moment is that Jesus knows who hit him. Of course he knows. Not just the man's name. He, he knows every sin this man's committed. He, he knows his deepest secrets and fears. Jesus knows who hit him, and yet he remains silent here, silent. Uh, Further irony is that they're mocking him and and beating him, and as they are actually doing this, they are fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus made just a few chapters back, right, in Luke 18.31, when when he tells them, I am going to be be mocked and shamefully treated by others. And here they are doing just that. So what do we learn in these first couple verses of our passage today? First, we we learn the depravity of the human heart. Um, It's not a popular theological take in the wider world. I know we accept it in our Reformed world quite easily, but uh, it shows us the depravity of the human heart. Jesus, the the man in their custody, custody, um, he has fed the poor, he has healed the sick, he's he's done no violence against anyone, and when these men are presented with the only man who is truly, truly, truly holy, 
The only man who has literally done no evil in his life, what do they actually do with him? They mock him, they abuse him. Here we observe what Romans 8, 7 teaches, right? When it says, for the, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. And here they are, hostile towards God. People often fixate on this question, you know, why is there so much evil in the world? And it's a fair question to ask, but, right? I mean, the obvious answers here are because of sin, because of the depraved hearts. Those are answers, right? But, but I wish we'd actually more often ask a different question. Why does God actually restrain so much evil in the world? If God did not restrain the, the evil in people's hearts, this world would be so much worse. J.C. Ryle goes as far as to say that apart from God restraining evil, which is a gracious thing he does, apart from God restraining evil, this world would be little better than hell itself. When we, humanity, mock and beat even our Savior, what, what hope do we have? And yet that's the point of this. That even those guards, right, could later have hope because of what Jesus is doing here. Even for the great evil that they are committing right here. Now, the second thing we learn here is, is the long-suffering patience of our Lord. Uh, at home we have, uh, we have this cat. He's actually bigger than our dog. But we have an outdoor cat at this point because he killed too many things that he brought into the house. Uh, anyway, his name's Mr. Nubbers. He has this little nub tail. He looks like a little bobcat. Um, anyway, he is just absolutely vicious when he wants to be. I, I was looking out the window one time and a bird flies by him and he catches it out of the air and kills the thing. Uh, just last week, I, I go in the garage and I find a, a rabbit's head uh, severed from its body that he, he brought in there for us, right? Cats are terrible gifters. Um, but just knowing he is capable of, of so efficiently killing things, that, that's always in the back of my head when I, when I see our children playing with him, right? Because they don't play nicely with him. They're, they hold him upside down by his feet and stuff, things that, you know, Peter probably wouldn't approve of. Um, just treat him like a rag doll. And, and all the while, you know, I just think at any moment he could just tear them to shreds, right? And, and yet... This beast never claws them, never bites them, never does anything to them. I'm just amazed by it. How much more shocking is it then that, that here is Jesus who, who could have killed his assailants with, with the same thoughts by which he, he healed people's bodies, right? Here they are mocking and tormenting God. Here they are, you know, he could have just done whatever he wanted, and yet our Lord just endures their mocking, endures their beatings, and, and there is so much more abuse yet to come for the sake of purchasing the redemption of his people. And he endures it. And through it all, he just endures it. I'm shocked by that. Christians, don't ever forget that your Lord suffered these things for you. His enduring of, of every painful blow and every mocking word was an expression of his love for lost sinners, including you. Furthermore, Jesus here actually models for us patience through persecution. And I know, right, we're always a little cautious, right? No, this is what he did for us. It doesn't mean that it's actually a model for us to actually follow everything like that, right? But, but, but yeah, we are really supposed to, to follow his example here. Listen to this, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. Uh, it says this, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. What's that look like? Maybe we complain less. Maybe there's times to remain silent and keep doing good when we are mistreated and insulted because of our commitment to to the Lord and our commitment to his word and the proclamation of the gospel. There is uh, one more interesting thing in this first section. Uh, There in verse 65, Luke says, uh, their words against Jesus equated to blaspheming Jesus. See, blaspheming is profane and contemptuous speech or writing against God. Uh, it is saying lies about God. It is, it is serving or, or saying evil things about God. It, it's also treating God flippantly, right? Like it's no big deal, which is, which is why saying OMG might not seem like anything, but it's a form of, of actual blasphemy that as Christians we should remove from our vocabulary. But more to the point here, <clears throat> Luke chooses this word blaspheming in verse 65 on purpose. Because um, by the end of this trial just this first trial that we're seeing today, they are going to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And Luke wants you and I to see here at the very start that the real blasphemy is not uttered by Jesus, but it is spoken against Jesus. Luke is making sure that we understand, in fact, that, you know, Jesus' real identity here, that, that he is God and that these soldiers and later their bosses will commit what is true blasphemy against God. The very fact that it's blasphemy against Jesus, right, implies that he is God, divine. And so then in verse 66, the trial now begins in earnest, and as they gather this council, and we don't see the name of this council in our passage here today, but uh, it's called the Sanhedrin. It's made out of uh, 71 Jewish elders, including the high priest. And, and so these various trials that Jesus goes through, and you see them in all the Gospels, they can get a little confusing at times. You're like, didn't he just have a trial? Yeah, but here's another one. Um, <clears throat> because all the Gospels actually explain a little more details in one and the other. And, and at this point, it looks like the first trial that Jesus is going through, but he has actually been through two unofficial pre-trials, I think lawyers might call them. Uh, <clears throat> we have too many lawyers in here, I should probably have asked. Uh, anyway, which, you know, we learn about in Matthew. And now, and now Jesus uh, appears before uh, Annas, who was the former high priest, but still very influential. And they just kind of ask him some questions and evaluate some things. And then he appeared before Caiaphas, who was, or was the current high priest at this moment, who was probably wondering, why didn't you come to me first? I'm the high priest. Anyway, uh, you can read about their interaction in Matthew 26 if you want to go back there. But <clears throat> you see, there are laws that the Sanhedrin are, are supposed to follow. And, and one of those is, is that this trial, any official trial to be legit, has to take place in daytime. Uh, I'm sure there's all kinds of reasons for that. And, and anyway, though, that's why Luke, back in verse 66 here, actually points out when day broke, right? This is a legal trial at this point. Now, it, it's easy to read between the lines and all of this and see that, that Jesus is really already condemned by these people. Before the trial even begins, and, and, and at this point, they just want to make it official. That's what they're aiming to do. And now, because the Jews are under the, gover- the Roman government, they don't have a legal right to execute the death penalty on anyone. They can't do it. And, and so they want to declare Jesus not only guilty uh, according to their own law, but also they want something on him that will convince the Roman government when they bring, here's Jesus, and, and there's a reason that you should want to execute him. That's what they're trying to get to. And, and, and so that's, that's what they're aiming for. Make no mistake, they're not actually after justice here. They're not actually after truth. They see Jesus as a problem and they want to remove him. 
Uh, you know, we know they're not after, uh, after justice. After all, the, the same Jewish document, the Talmud, which requires that trials be conducted in the daylight, right, and that, that they're trying to follow, it also says you can't execute someone on the same day that they are found guilty. But that's the very thing they're going to do on this day. So anyway, the Sanhedrin usually met in the temple complex and in this building called uh, the north wall of the, the temple called the Hall of Hewn Stones, which is a fantastic name for a building. Um, but on this morning, they actually meet over at Caiaphas's house, uh, maybe because it's the Passover, which means, again, it's not lawful for the Sanhedrin to meet on this day, but hey, loopholes, right? If we don't meet at our building, uh, maybe that's not an official thing that we can't do. Uh, that's how motivated they, these, these faux holy men are to murder Jesus. And, and you can't help but think, right, if this was happening in our day today, people would be protesting this, we'd be raging about the injustice of these trials, of these legal proceedings, and yet there is none of that on this day. Furthermore, and yet this was the will of God. This this was the details, the, the means by which God is accomplishing salvation for me and, and you and all who place their faith in Jesus. The, these depraved men meant this for evil, but, but, but God, who is sovereign, means it for good. God means it for the sake of the gospel. God means it for the sake of your salvation. And so now look at verse 67 here. They, they ask a simple enough question of Jesus, right? If, if you're the Christ, tell us. Can you imagine beginning a court case like that, right? Guys on trial for, uh, for murder, and your first question is, okay, this is not a question technically, but sir, if you murdered her, just tell us. That's my first question. Uh, sadly, they're, they're not interested in whether Jesus is the Christ or not. They just want him to say that indeed he is. Because um, for them, that's, that's the confession of blasphemy that they're after. Kind of like you'd have viewed things if Tim had stood up here at the pastoral prayer this morning and said, hey, good morning. I'm the Messiah. Uh, we'd frown on that, to, to put it lightly, right? I hope we'd frown on that, right? Uh, but, but that's because we already know who the Messiah is. They don't. They're waiting for the Messiah. They're looking for the Messiah. The Messiah. They're, they're expecting this, right? I, I, and I should have mentioned this earlier, right? But, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, I'm shocked how often I'm talking to someone and, and that actually comes up. That that's not his last name, right? Christ is the Greek term meaning Messiah, and Messiah is, is you know, a term that means uh, the anointed one, and it points to kingship, since uh, a king was anointed with, with oil, right? A special oil is poured on his head at his inauguration, like, okay, this is the official king now. Uh, and, and, and these details are actually really important to what's going on here because the kingship of Jesus, that's going to be the accusation that, that the Jews are, are going to put on Jesus when they bring him between the, before the, the, the Romans in our passage next week, right? Uh, because there's, there's been a lot of irony in this passage already. Here's, here's one more. These Jewish leader, leaders expect the Christ, the promised Messiah, right? The guy they're waiting for, they've been expecting him to be this massive political leader with some military force, right? He's going to win their, their independence from Rome and we're going to be wonderful again as the nation of Israel. And, and all this despite God's word not, not promising a Messiah like that, but, but still their, their expectations are one reason that they actually reject Jesus, that he's not the Messiah, that, that kind of leader that their evil hearts wanted. And, and yet, they are going to seek to convince the Romans that he is the kind of Messiah that they want. That that's exactly the sort of leader that he is. And again, just because they want to see the Romans, 
kill him. And they want the Romans to believe this man intends to overthrow our, our government. The, the bottom line is that they're trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself with this question. And, right, we'd plead the fifth, but Jesus doesn't plead the fifth. You can't plead the Fifth Amendment back then. Uh, but he kind of does when he, when he responds saying, if I, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. Have you ever been dumb enough to engage in an argument on social media? Okay, many of you shook your heads yes. Uh, yeah, right? It was the Wild West in the social media. But, uh, right, if you have, though, then you know what Jesus knows here, that there is no use in arguing with someone who has already completely made up their mind. No use. Someone who's not interested in real discussion or learning anything here at all. And Jesus has the wisdom here, right, uh, to know when is a time for discussion, like the Samaritan woman at the well, and when it is better for disengagement, like at this corrupt trial right here. Now, oh, that God would grant us the wisdom to know those two things as well. And yet, even in the calmness of Jesus' response, even as he avoids a pointless argument here, he actually does just drop this truth bomb, for lack of a better term, at their feet. When he says in verse 69 here, when he says, look at it, he says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. You see, referring to himself as the, as the Son of Man, it, it's not saying like it sounds to us in our general English. It's not saying, hey, I'm just a man like anyone else, right? And, and the Jewish leaders know that's not what he's saying. This is an Old Testament title. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is, is one who comes in heavenly glory, who, who comes to render final judgment on the, the souls of, of men and women. The, the Son of Man is actually this, this vision of divinity, of, of, of the authority of God, of, of God. And, and Jesus is saying he's going to be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He, he's claiming divine authority and power upon himself right here. This is what happens, right? Hebrews 1.3 tells us later, right? After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And see, our, our passage today is, is often cited by people uh, who say, you know what? Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Or he never claimed to be God. He never did. And really, it's an ignorant statement, right? If you look at this in any detail, because by Jesus, Jesus' son of man statement here, that the Jewish leaders clearly understand what claim Jesus is making here. They're not like, well, so what are you saying here? They know exactly what he's saying. That's why they respond like they do there in verse 70, right? And, and we can be clearly certain that those words are spoken with anger and rage because they know what that means, right? Verse 70, they say, are you the son of God then? Is that what you're saying? Because clearly, that's what you're implying with that statement. That's what you're saying. And you and I, we know this, right? We know that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And so then why does Jesus not here say, yeah, that's right, I am the Son of God. Why doesn't he say that? Instead, Jesus merely says, you say that I am. You say that I am. Jesus' point here is that while they are verbally speaking truth here, right? They are absolutely right in the words that they are saying. They do not believe the truth that they are actually speaking out loud here. Which raises a massive question for us. Do you believe the truth that you confess about Jesus? You know the truth. You say the truth. Do you believe the truth that you confess about Jesus? And so Jesus isn't sidestepping their question. He is affirming their statement through this thought-provoking way. He's saying, I am exactly who you say I am. That's who I am. 
But do you believe that? And so did Jesus ever claim to be the son of God? Yes. Yes. That's the blasphemy that they actually falsely convict him of, right? That's what he's found guilty of. That's why they say in verse 71 here, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it from his own lips. He said it. Of course he's guilty. It meaning, right, his blasphemous claim to be the Christ, the Son of God, who is divine himself. And so they, they, they have the confession that their evil hearts have desired, the confession that permits them to condemn Jesus by their own law, and also permits them to bring him before the Romans, right, and to seek the death penalty as one who is a threat towards insurrection. A little more irony here, right, because... Jesus didn't come to bring about insurrection. He, he comes to bring about resurrection. And so Matthew 26, 65 gives us a little more detail on how this trial before the Sanhedrin ended. It says this, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have, heard, you have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they, they answer, and this is what I want you to hear, they answer, he deserves death. That's the assessment of this Sanhedrin. Jesus is guilty in their eyes, but their eyes are, are no good. Their eyes are blind. And sadly, these Jewish elders, they have no excuse for not trusting in Jesus. He tells them clearly who he is, but their, their hearts were, were so hard, and in their pride, they never even considered maybe, maybe, just maybe, this is the Messiah. This is the, the Christ that is promised. And they never considered it because they, they cared more about what the people around them thought of them. They cared more about their own prestige, their own power they have in this position. They, they cared more about a temporal government than they cared about knowing their God who, who came and suffered to redeem them from their sins. One of the, the greatest evils in this entire trial is that the creation man here sits in judgment of the creator God. We might think we judge God, but we do not judge God. God judges us. And thus the question of greatest importance for you and I here is, do you believe that Jesus Christ, or Jesus is the Christ? As you read the, the scriptures, do you believe that, that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Messiah, your Savior? See, there's nothing more important for you to believe in this life than that Jesus is the Savior, the Christ, whom God promised in the Scriptures. That this truth is, is what the angel prophesies. Remember right back at the birth of Jesus in Luke 2.11 when he, when he says, uh, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is what Peter confessed to Jesus back in Luke 9.20 when, when our Lord asked him, but but who do you say that I am, right? I mean, what, what does everyone else say about me? And then he asked Jesus, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, right, the Christ of God. So what about you? Do you know this? Not just as right information that you can check off somewhere, or that you can confirm. Do you, do you know this? Do you, do you confess honestly in your heart and confidently on your lips that, that Jesus is the Christ? That's where we're going to leave it today. Let, let, let us then believe the testimony that Jesus has given. Let us find salvation in the Son of God and the Son of Man and, and Jesus who is the Christ. If you can't answer that confidently, like, that, that's, that's your homework. 
for as long as it takes to, to be able to answer that. What do you say of Jesus? Do you know, do you believe in your deepest core of your heart that Jesus is the Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we dwell in a culture that has no problem believing the humanity of Jesus because we see humanity every day. But who finds the idea of Jesus being truly the divine Son of God difficult to believe. This truth is biblically revealed and spiritually discerned. Make our hearts to know this is true. To know Jesus is thoroughly man and thoroughly God. May, may we lean not on our own deficient understanding, but to trust in your word. And Holy Spirit, grow our love for Jesus. And strengthen our confidence in, in all that he is for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.